Hey everybody, welcome to Cinemusts, the podcast that debates the must-see status of the films included in the book 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. I'm rat bastard Mike Emmel, and I am absolutely horrified to be joined for tonight's episode by the man who sticks his neck out for nobody, Mr. Anthony Badger. Anthony, welcome back, man. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Thanks for coming back so soon. You were just on our last episode. You and your wife, Kimmy, hosted us through the good Star Wars movie, in your own words, The Empire Strikes Back, which shockingly has been voted a movie that everybody has to see. How do you feel about that? I feel proud. I think it's just because of just because I went to bat for it. Yeah, I, th- I think definitely. I think it was a, a, a little movie that could, and with your help, it got there into the high echelons of must-see movies. So thanks for uh, having its back, man. I do what I can. So I'm, I'm grateful to have you back, back in your wheelhouse. It's October. We're talking monsters. We're talking scary movies. So before we get diving into all that, I want to welcome everybody who's listening. Everybody, it's great to have you here. We hope you enjoy the show. If you do, remember you can check out all of our other episodes at our website at cinemas.com and wherever you listen to your podcasts. And for daily interactions and updates on our show content, you can follow us on whatever social media platform you choose. You just need to search for Cinemusts. So, Anthony, we're here today to debate the must-see status of two movies that some might say are essential viewing. But to do that, we're going to need the help of everybody who's listening because two people alone cannot decide if a film should be considered an absolute must-see. To build that essential cinema list, we need all of you listening to visit this episode's post at cinemus.com and vote tonight's films into one of three categories that are based on your personal recommendation level. Anthony, can you please explain to us what those three categories are? Yeah, first we have Cinemust, which is a, a must-see movie for, for everybody who's into movies. Then we've got Cinetrust, which uh, might be good for some, but not good for others. And then we have Cinebust, which is just flaming garbage, and you shouldn't watch it ever. Nice, nicely said. So, um, usually this is the part of the show where we take an intermission to reveal how last episode's movies were voted on, but that, uh, by popular demand, is something that we are just relegating to social media. So if anybody's curious about how the Star Wars movies did... Make sure to check us out on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. So, Anthony, let's just get going into the movies that we're talking about tonight, which you have chosen, so I wondered if you could give us an intro on them. Yeah, tonight uh, we're talking about Nosferatu and Nosferatu. Um, They each have different subtitles in different languages, uh, but one is the uh, 1922 German Expressionist silent film from F.W. Murnau, and the other is going to be the 1979 film from Werner Herzog. What what made you pick these two? I know you're a horror guy, you're a monster guy. What drew you to Nosferatu? I like vampires. <laughs> <laughs> and movies about them. <laughs> yeah, they're they're interesting. Not the first Nosferatu is one of the first horror films ever made or at least uh feature length horror films ever made. And then to have it be remade by such a interesting filmmaker like Werner is uh it just makes for an interesting kind of double feature. And I know this is a double feature you and I have talked about having like ever since the, the show started 50 episodes ago. So I'm really excited we're finally getting to it. So um, let's dive into it. So for anybody who's new to the show, Anthony and I are going to take a couple of minutes to be totally spoiler free. Give just like some general impressions, plot summary, just general facts about the movie. And we are going to vote both of them into one of the three categories that Anthony described. Cinemust, Cinetrust, or Cinebust. And we'll give three reasons apiece for why we feel the way that we do. And from there, we'll lay down a spoiler warning, talk about the movies more in depth, back those points up. But if you haven't seen the movies, hang with us for a couple minutes while we uh, rap about them just generally. So, Anthony, uh, I gave you the plot summary for 1922's Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror. Would you mind telling everybody what the movie's about? Yeah, I mean, it's 
it's basically an adaptation of Dracula, Bram Stoker's Dracula. So it's about uh, a man who goes to make a, a real estate deal at a castle where he runs into a vampire who comes back to civilization and starts his reign of terror. So, Mike, how did you vote for Nosferatu, Symphony of Horror? Symphony of Horror, I'm going to go must. I think everybody should see this movie. Uh, firstly, because I think it is the grandfather of all vampire films, and I guess I could take what you said and kind of put a, a sub-bullet under that, that it's, it's almost the grandfather of all horror films. I know there's horror movies before this, but, you know, to me, I think modern horror movies take a lot more from Nosferatu than they do something like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari or, you know, George Melier's Haunted House movies. So, you know, this is a, a real... Mm-hmm. This is a really influential early horror movie, uh, which feeds my second point. I think it's got silent horror's most chilling imagery. The the stuff that Murnau puts onto the screen, uh, you know, we champion silent movies all the time. Is like, oh, the imagery is so rich because that's all they had. And I think Nosferatu is, of, of all silent movies, it's one of the ones I think that best holds up as a, a pleasurable viewing experience and even a creepy one. And then my third reason, I think it's just a really beautiful story of a lot of striking dichotomies. Like it, it almost has like a fairy tale feel. It's really confident in structure and it's balancing all these ideas of light and shadow and fear and bravery and love and lust, life and death, which I think it does kind of simplistically, but so beautifully. So this is absolutely a movie that I think everybody's got to see. Uh, how about you, man? How are you going to vote for this? Yeah, for me, this is a cinemust as well. Um, and my reasons are firstly that this is not only a vampire movie, but a Dracula movie that is kind of free of all the pop cultural trappings and cliches that we associate with that genre now. No, no capes, no Bela Lugosi voices. So it, it kind of feels, it, it's, it's like a more raw, genuine version of Dracula. Mm. My second reason is that I think it, 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 it's like a palatable blend of the expressionist film movement along with like the the elements of grounded reality kind of creating a liminal space where horror can kind of move into our world which is uh very different from like the film you mentioned cabinet of dr caligari which is like pure expressionism Mm -hmm. um and my last is my last reason is really similar to your last reason or your second reason being that it's a silent film that holds up just incredibly well after almost a hundred years of existence. Oh yeah. We're, th- we're three years away. Yeah. And it, it, it plays, I think still really well for a modern audience. Yeah. I'd actually agree. Quick question. Do you think that this movie still has the power to scare people or at the very least creep them out? Oh yeah. Yes. Okay. I just want to put that blanket statement out there. We can kind of get into that more later, but that sounds like a a good selling point. A silent movie that can actually scare people is very rare to come by these days. That's true. All right. 100% approval rating on Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror. Uh, Let's move over really quick to Nosferatu, Phantom der Nacht, or Nosferatu, The Vampire. I know is also the subtitle. This is, as Anthony mentioned, the 1979 uh, remake. Director Werner Herzog prefers to call it an homage instead of a remake, but um, my work is done for me for the plot summary because it is exactly everything Anthony said in the 1922's plot summary. Uh, This time the copyright's expired, though, so uh, they can use the Dracula names. So now we've got Klaus Kinski as Dracula. We have Bruno Gans as Jonathan Harker. We have Isabel Adjani as Lucy Harker. And a very creepy Roland Topor as Renfield. Uh, But other than that, same thing. Real estate agent goes to meet a vampire, brings death and the plague back to his small town. Anthony, how are you going to vote for this one? 
Uh, for this one, this was hard, and I, I ended up settling on Cinetrust. Okay. My reasons being, uh, well, one, I love this movie uh, a lot. For me, it's a cinemust. But I think for some, it's going to be hard, because even though Klaus Kinski manages to be an extremely uh, pathos-filled vampire and turns in a really good performance, I don't think it ever tops the commanding presence of Max Schreck. Same goes for Isabella uh, Adjani. She is a huge improvement as far as a lead character over the previous film um, that gives it a really interesting performance. But even though there's all these kind of unique elements, which my last one being that Herzog relies more on mood than I think uh, traditional narrative storytelling to tell this story, Mm. I don't think any of it ever really tops except in, in little kind of glimpses as a whole package. I don't think it ever really tops the impression that the first film uh, leaves. Interesting. Okay. So there on, on our list of essential cinema, there can be only one Nosferatu and you're going to hand it over to Murnau's 1922. Yeah. I just, I think if, if you're going to show someone who's never seen either of these movies, just one, uh, I don't think that this one would stick with them as well as the first first one mm. or maybe even maybe even at all it, it's sort of a, an irony as much as i think the first one plays really well for modern audiences i don't think this one does okay man and as always with Cinetrust votes i have to ask it's a movie for a certain group of people maybe a lot of people but not everybody so who is the group of people that you absolutely do recommend nosferatu phantom der nacht to i think you've got to have an interest in this uh, type of filmmaking this kind of more slow moody uh, imagery-based uh, s- storytelling. Probably people who are interested in seeing or revisiting the kind of uh, update on Nosferatu. But I think, as a whole, I just I think that there's a lot of people who will find this kind of slow, perhaps even meandering, and might miss some of the more striking visual elements from Murnau's film. It's mm, fair enough, and it is. Very much in that realm of the late 70s, very artistic, and as we will discuss in spoilers, very into the 70s mindset, uh, yeah. which you can't talk about without giving away the ending. Okay, man. So how about you, Mike? What, what did you vote for this film? So I, like you, I really love this movie so much that I'm going to give it a cinema must. I can't argue with you that if um, I was only going to pick one to show to people, I also would probably go with Murnau's Silent first. But in my universe, there is room for both of these movies on the essential cinema list because I think that um, Herzog does a lot of really cool things. He makes this movie his own. I think it's one of the best remakes that I've ever seen. Uh, So my three reasons why I think everybody should see this movie the first is kind of piggybacking off one of your points. I think this is, uh, Klaus Kinsey gives us maybe cinema's most sympathetic vampire. I don't think any other performance in a vampire movie has gotten me in the mindset of what it's like to live that life of, of living for centuries and having to feast on blood. I think it's such a good performance and um, kind of what makes this movie special. The, the second reason, this is going to be a weird point for me because I usually try to be an optimistic guy, but this really is like a hypnotic rumination on death and oblivion from the master himself, Werner Herzog. He's a guy who's pretty notorious for having a bleak world outlook. He's kind of capitalized a lot on that image on his like uh, recent run of guest spots on like sitcoms and stuff where he's kind of starting to play with what a downer he can be. Um, I think this movie, maybe more than any of the other ones of his I've seen, just really, like you said, gets that mood of oblivion and death out. And I I don't totally know what to do with it, but I'm really 
down with just being lost in it. I'm one of those people like you described that's kind of okay to just swim in the mood that he's laying down. Uh, but my, my third reason is a little more approachable, though. Herzog's tweaks to the second half of the story, so everything that happens once the vampire actually lands in civilization, he changes a lot of things, and I actually think they are for the better. I think that they're a lot more interesting, they're um, more artistically satisfying to me, and maybe that is, speaking to what you're saying, that he's going for mood over conventional narrative structure, but there's even some things that he does with narrative structure that I think are super cool and um, make this unique. It's not just a straight remake. He didn't just take Murnau's movie, put it in color, add dialogue to it. Like He really has made this his own version of the story, uh, which is why I think it's Cinemust. I think it can stand toe-to-toe with the 1922 original. Interesting. I know. This is going to be super fun. Um, So before we get moving into spoilers, man, are there any final words you'd like to say on either of the movies? I think the big kind of takeaway from both of these movies is that they are horror movies they're monster they're movies that feature monsters but they always sort of elevate themselves over the the camp that kind of tends to weigh this genre down uh perhaps maybe maybe more so oh well and it's it's a recognizable monster i mean you're you're not getting a lot of merchandise for you know dr caligari or something like that but uh, I'd say Nosferatu is right up there with, you know, the the Boris Karloff Frankenstein, the Bela Lugosi, Dracula. Yeah, um, as, he's as been sort in SpongeBob. Of, he has indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, and I and I just think that kind of more so than a lot of those other franchises, this has sort of re- remained in kind of the realm of high cinema, while also never leaving the the things that make us love horror movies. Yeah, no, it's definitely an all-timer. It's been recognized as a masterpiece by just about everybody out there. I think even the Vatican, when they picked like four, 45 like great movies or whatever, like Nosferatu is on their list. <laughs> I had one thing that's um, l- less analytical and kind of more pragmatic if anybody is planning on watching these before they go to cinemas.com to cast their votes. Is um, What's great when we talk about silent movies is they're usually public domain, so YouTube will have these magnificent prints of these movies, so you can find Nosferatu super easily, but um, I wanted to lay out a friendly word of warning for me uh, to, wherever possible, if you're going to try to find these movies on streaming, try to find one that has Hans Erdmann's original orchestral score. Um, a lot of the YouTube videos that are out there of the full of the whole movie, they use this really monotonous just organ score. It's really one note, and I actually think it really, really hurts the movie. And if you can go and find uh, like Kino Lorber's Blu-ray is really good, but there's even some YouTube videos that have uh, done orchestrations of the original score. It, it's way better. It like plays with the movie. It takes into account the emotions of the scene. It knows when to be bombastic. It knows when to quiet down and be more sinister. So that was just my my word of caution is don't just go for the first uh, Nosferatu clip you see on YouTube. Like try to find one with that Hans Erdmann original score. The movie will be a better viewing experience for it. Yeah, I have to agree with that. Okay, man. Well, if you've got nothing else to say that's spoiler free, I think we should just get talking spoilers for A Symphony of Horror. What do you say? Let's do it.
All right, Anthony, we got some great points here for the original Nosferatu, 1922. Um, your second point, you said that this movie blends surreal expressionism with grounded elements of reality perfectly. I liked how you, how you described that. My question I had watching this movie is I know that Nosferatu is always mentioned only second to Dr. Caligari when it comes to German expressionism. It's the movie that everybody refers to. But looking at the movie, I, I wanted to ask you, like, is the movie really expressionist or is it just that it's gothic because to me it doesn't have the exaggerated sets it's not really trying to get in like the headspace of one character the way expressionist movies try to do they they augment the world of the film the sets the art design around how a certain person sees the world but Nosferatu seems pretty third person it seems pretty objective and whatever is um expressionist about it I think could just be played off as um well, that's just a Transylvanian castle. But I wanted to, to see if I'm off base there. What do you think? I see your point, but I think I probably disagree. Um, I mean, the, the, the easiest place to see this is in the vampire himself. That vampire mm. design is very standout, very, uh, it really leans heavily into that kind of expressionist mode of thinking with like the claws that he has and the gnawing teeth, like a rodent and mm -hmm. those big eyes. I mean, that stuff all, I think really, really leans into kind of the expressionist movement and, and as well as the, the kind of the things that we see him do, the way his shadow is cast almost cartoonishly on the walls, yeah, yeah. but, but very effectively nonetheless. Another another thing that, that comes to mind right off the bat is is there's a, a sequence where he has transformed into a wolf, I, be, I believe. The hyena werewolf. Yeah. And and instead of yeah, instead of the kind of classic European wolf, it's a it's a hyena, which I think kind of uh, is meant to kind of evoke that sort of more feral kind of diseased mangy yeah. nature that this that this particular vampire has and i think a lot of kind of uh, choices like that even though as, as i already said this is it, it's hard to completely judge why those choices were made because this is a dracula before he became a mainstay in pop culture but i think they're all very much informed by the german expressionist movement uh yeah. more so than what you're saying just kind of blanket goth you know yeah, no, I, I totally see what you're saying. And I like what you said, too, that, that it has a consistent visual language and those things always belong to the, the other that is Count Orlock, that all of that invades what is otherwise like a perfectly grounded reality with um, the town of Weisberg. Which is, I mean, again, it, it's hard to really appreciate how uh, pioneering that really was, but the, the way that that visual language invades and violates it's a staple of horror today, you know, to see a zombie walk into our real world or something like that. But that this would, this was you know, pretty groundbreaking for the time and something that, that we've never really let go of in film. Yeah. And I think that's something most Dracula adaptations get right. Like every, every Dracula movie almost has the exact same first act. Cause you know, what Bram Stoker wrote was just so great. It's that slow march into Transylvania and that gradual chipping away of reality that no matter how many books Hutter reads about Nosferatu and the werewolf and everything. He's still by the light of the sun is like, oh, it's just hogwash. But by night, there are such things. And it's slowly chipping away that veneer of um, disbelief that there really is a vampire out there. And yeah, like you said, to to have that happening in, in 1920 was probably pretty damn scary. Yeah. And I, I guess I can use that 
because you already just mentioned like a, a bunch of those chilling images that I mentioned that are ha the third of my reason for why everyone's got to see it. That those shadow shots, I, I think they're the most obvious ones, but they they have stayed within pop culture for 97 years. Like the especially the one of him climbing up the stairs and when he reaches his hand out and the shadow stretches his arm out. And even oh, the one I always forget about until I'm watching the movie is um, when he's finally in Helen's room in the climactic scene where she's sacrificing herself and he's. His, the shadow of his hand is creeping up her white dress and it clutches at her heart and she reacts. And I, I can never tell if it's horror or orgasmic joy or both, but that's also something that's pretty striking for something from the twenties that I don't think you really expect to happen. I think you kind of just expect him to walk in and just start biting her neck, but there's a lot of um, suspenseful building and, and kind of what I'm talking about this being the, the grandfather of all vampire films and, and of a lot of horror movies is that model for suspense and building things up and trying to deny that there's anything wrong until finally it just cannot be denied anymore that there's a plague on the loose and death has come to our town is really groundbreaking. And, and another, so another point that I, I wanted to kind of bring up throughout the spoiler discussion is your point that this is a silent film that holds up shockingly well, and it's almost a hundred years old. Uh, so I wondered if you had like any specific points you wanted to point out on why Nosferatu still plays pretty well to a modern audience where something else from the, the same era has become outdated or, you know, it's unwatchable because it's a silent movie. Yeah. I mean, in part, I'd say it's, it's pretty well paced or at least maybe consistently paced. It doesn't tend to kind of rush and slow down, which I think a lot of early films did before they kind of really understood <laughs> how to do that. Right. That's true. Um, but I think another one, I mean, it really is just what you're saying. There are so many striking visuals that, uh, continually pull you in the one that i always forget about is the kind of stiff rise from his coffin that we've yeah. seen a million times since yeah but if i'm honest i don't think we've ever seen it better than it's done here no yeah where that's... it's where it's it's truly kind of creepy it's not it's not campy or rote here it, it, it feels so unnatural and and gross i mean everything he does you know, is so vermin like yeah that's true why to you, why doesn't it seem campy? Because I think that that is a danger that the movie is in playing to modern audiences, that he always has the, the rigid stance and the claws always outstretched and he moves in those slow dancer-like movements. W to you, why does that still come off as creepy where others might find it campy? It's hard, hard to really say. I, his performance, like I said earlier, is it's commanding. I mean, he's, he himself is very hyp hypnotic, just the way he carries himself and the way his makeup is done and so on and so forth. But I think also there's a certain, uh, a certain almost documentarian kind of sense to Murnau's camera here that makes it feel really real uh, that, that, you, you know, you don't get in something that feels a lot more stagey, like, like Bela Lugosi or certainly modern uh, vampire movies. That's a good point, because if we look at back at um, other German movies from this era, if we look at something like Caligari, very stagey, right? Like literally painted backdrops on, on sets. And here's Murnau like marching out into the middle of the mountains to give you like a, a glorious vista and like an actual castle and all these things to lend it, a, like you said, a sort of documentary and feel that does probably go a long way to establishing our world is real and the monster world is real as well because here's you know we plop this heavily makeup dude in the middle of this castle and it, he has instantly made it his own yeah 
I also liked what you said about um, Max Shrek's commanding performance because um, well, I think we'll talk more about the character a lot more when we get to Herzog's version. But I, I do have to say, if we're comparing the two, Shrek's portrayal of the character to me is a lot more of the hunter. Like to me, I can see him pulling the the, the puppet strings a lot clearer. He's a much more sinister vampire to me where he seems a lot more in control and a lot more just like he knows his prey that there's that shot after he's had the great march through weisberg where he's carrying his coffins over to his new place and he he just has that shot of looking up at like all of the open windows and without without a title card i think we're now has like perfectly got the idea of cross that after centuries of just living alone in that castle and living off of scraps of whatever rodent he could find just windows full of wonderful necks and people that he can feast off of. It's such a good moment. Yeah. And I can see that maybe a lot of people wouldn't feel this way, but even scenes you you were talking earlier about things that might seem cheesy. I'm thinking about that scene where he's loading up his uh, like cargo or whatever. And it's, it's kind of stop motiony the way that he's like stacking everything up. But I think even, even that, because it has this almost uh, kind of predatory or like I said, like vermin uh, kind of quality to, to how he moves and what he looks like a scene that, that maybe hasn't dated that well. And in any other movie, I think would be kind of a show of like um, power that maybe we aspire towards to it to some degree. This vampire in in that scene it's still off-putting it's still uncanny it still feels like something you know like you're watching a an insect or a termite or something like carrying you know building a nest carrying things that are more its way instead of something that maybe we hope that we have or that we could respect or cower before it's just something that's off-putting like all the time and and murnau's really good he he pulls out a lot of the stops this is this is about as much a special effects movie as um, you know something like the Gold Rush, because you we have those just simple plays with frame rates and editing to make things look faster. He does it with the the carriage that brings Hutter to the castle to make it look like these horses are otherworldly and can fly. Um, the shot where where he uses the negative instead of the final print to make the forest look like it's kind of a ghost land. Like you said, those those always kind of go one of two ways because you know cinema appreciators can put themselves in the shoes of like 1922 and being like this, this guy is using everything at his disposal to try to make things seem off putting. The, the problem with old special effects in movies is um, we know how they're done now. So it, it becomes very obvious that like Orlock putting himself into his coffin and then the lid raising itself up is something, you know, we could do with our iPhones. We just have to take, you know, six pictures and we've made notes for Atu. So it's always a shame that some people kind of dismiss it because it's not something that's uh, head scratching anymore that we know how it's done. but. I admire that it's kind of a special effects driven movie. And, and even with, like you said, the the rising from the coffin is a pretty easy special effect to figure out, but still extremely off-putting in its rigidness and um, and kind of just the glee on Shrek's face as he rises up because he's he's been having sailors for dinner every night for a week. And um, so all this stuff, we've been talking a lot about um, Dracula. And of course, we've we've drugged Bela Lugosi as, as the most famous Dracula into this. Um, you, you said that like the plus for this is that it doesn't have any of that pop culture weighing it down, that everything still feels really raw. And I know we've already kind of talked about Shrek's performance and his 
stylization as a, a non-seductive vampire as, as really like a visualization of the death and plague that he brings are, are there other elements of the movie that you feel contribute to that that raw feeling that gets it out of this you know kind of cheesy pop culture that dracula gets mired in yeah i mean we could we can go into all sorts of things but again like for me the big one is how just disgusting this vampire is in both what he looks like and what he does you know, he, he doesn't, again, to compare it to like Bela Lugosi or something, you don't see him go into town and, and he feels like, ah, now I'm going to get power or I'm going to amass a good house and wealth and all this stuff. You don't, he's just there to eat. You know, yeah. he is just yeah. there to spread disease. That kind of linking between the vampire and the plague is is genius um, and something that not since this movie I think has been done as well, except for Inverna Herzog's and, and, and just, just, just moves like that because there's no expectation uh, really make this movie still incredibly unique, which is shocking. But I, I guess it's just because of kind of the prominence of the universals movies. Yeah. Which, which this, this feels kind of like a dirty discussion to have because you and I, like we adored all the universal monsters, but it's still, this is something very, very different. And it is kind of a shame that this aside from Nosferatu, I don't feel like has its day in the sun that, that Nosferatu kind of stands in for an era where the universal monsters like are an era unto themselves. They have dozens of movies that are readily available to us and, and that's also just a, a product of the age, right? That we've lost, what is it, like 90% of all movies before 1930. So there's no telling you know, what we've lost. Do you think um, the backstory of Nosferatu is, is equal parts, a part of its legacy? Because, you know, Nosferatu, the film itself, is a survivor. It was ordered destroyed because uh, a judge said, you're absolutely ripping off Bram Stoker's novel. Uh, you have to destroy this movie. You don't have permission. And luckily, a couple of prints had gotten out of country when that happened. So I think I think I've heard like every print we have of Nosferatu is based off of like four prints that managed to survive that, and every other one was destroyed. Do Do you think that that has an influence on its legacy, or do you think like it's entirely the film itself? Uh, it, I mean, it has an influence for people like us that that kind of really dig into these things and, and look into them. But, I mean, I, I know I was exposed. I mean, we joked about it earlier, but I was exposed to Bob, however, you know, 15 years ago or whenever that was. Um, <laughs> and what got me in was just that I saw this really, really, really terrifying creature. And I thought, well, I want to look up what this movie is. So so as, as much as I think that that legacy is is really interesting and certainly kind of kind of bolsters the the allure or the kind of the magnetic presence of the film if i was to choose an element that kind of keeps it going and, and has always kept it going it is 100 percent just that that vampire's striking uh design which is a point that i would uh kind of nestle into my point about the the grandfather of all vampire films that early on in show prep that point was simply the design of the vampire and then as it kind of fleshed out i thought oh there's a lot more about you know the the slow draw into the castle the way they built suspense um like you said the the feeding frenzy like all of this is more than just how count orlock looks but yeah he i mean this this is your point right like there's there's kind of two vampires in all of cinema there's there's bell lugosi suave sexiness in his cape and then there's max shrek's 
just hideous ghoulishness and the the claws and the the exact opposite and there's like to me I, I really don't even feel like there's a third vampire in movies like every other vampire is an alteration of one of those two yeah no 100 percent um i'm gonna i'm gonna cheat a little i'm gonna kind of take a, a bit of your point from herzog's movie into here because you talked about herzog relying a lot more on mood than conventional narrative structure. Is that um, something you get in response from Murnau's movie? Do you think Murnau has more of a, a feel of conventional narrative structure and less of mood and that is a stronger point for you? I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I'd really hold one over the other or anything, but I liked when you were talking about mood, you kind of described it as kind of hypnotic. And I think kind of the the way that the narrative structure of the original movie works isn't necessarily hypnotic as much as its monster is hypnotic, if, if, if that makes sense. No, it, it totally does. Because to me, the, the silent movie, you can see a lot more of the nuts and bolts. When you see a shot placed next to another, you can kind of tell why they're arranged in such a way to elicit a certain reaction. Because even when the movie kind of stops cold in the middle of um, what, what I kind of call the, the chase, so we have Orlock on the ship and we have Hutter mustering his strength and they're racing back to see which one's going to get to um, Helen first. You know, we have this section where we stop and we have the Venus fly traps and we have the, the polyp with the tentacles and we have mm-hmm. the spiders and it's, it's just like one, one thing after another to see like vampires are in nature you see. And I kept, I kept asking myself, is that, is that Murnau putting that in because he wants to show us just something creepy? Does he, not feel that we've already understood like what the basic idea of vampirism is. So he's just doubling down to make sure the audience understands, or is he really just trying to, to lay out like a, a mood of dread that he, by showing all of these predators uh, juxtaposed with Orlock on the ship and Lucy at the beach, that he's also drawing that parallel and he might be doing all three. He might be doing just one. It's, it's kind of hard to tell intent, but this, this is all to say that like, while I think that this one is a lot more, concerned with being structurally smooth and getting the audience a, a thrill ride in 90 minutes. He still does a lot to build mood. I think that the, uh, the werewolf, the werewolf hyena that you mentioned is, is another thing that we spend a lot of time building up Nosferatu and Count Orlock. You know, we have the, the obligatory horror movie scene, which I, I love in every horror movie of the, the outsider coming into the village that knows and the room falling silent when you mention the wrong guy's name and they have to beg him not to go. Um, so, you know, there, this, mo- this isn't a movie that I would say is devoid of mood, but is definitely a little more, you can more openly see, like, why it is constructed the way it is. Yeah, Sorry. but I mean, that, that, no, 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 that, that makes sense, and that's, that's just sort of uh, part and parcel with kind of German filmmaking of the time. True enough, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so... I haven't gotten to talk a lot about these these striking dichotomies I have. And I think we, we've talked about them with design and everything because there's light and shadow is one of the big ones. And I love all of this stuff in Transylvania that um, by day, that place is gorgeous. I mean, that that shot of Hutter on like the castle battlement and the, the mountains and the forests are in front of him. I mean, that's absolutely gorgeous stuff. And I, I love how he arranges that in such a way to keep having Hutter dismiss like the the really creepy occurrences of the night before he oh that, that was nothing that was a bad dream or something but then by night you know those, those simple shots of like the sun going down or the clouds covering it like you can feel the mood drop and everybody like really dreading that like bad times are about to come but 
Yeah, I think uh, love and a little bit of lust and, and death, I think, really permeate like every frame of the movie. Like the movie opens with this almost idyllic fairy tale marriage, you know, with the, sh- the shot of Helen playing with the cat and they're so in love and the, the young husband is going off to provide for his maiden wife. And um, in, a, in a move that I think is, like I said, probably fairly simplistic and structurally safe, I still think it is kind of gutsy that we have, in the end, Helen making the ultimate sacrifice to let Count Orlok drink her blood so he will forget that Daybreak is coming so that he can be killed. I think that's kind of beautiful and, and oddly depressing for silent films. I mean, European stuff gets away with a lot more, but I don't think we're used to seeing that. I think in silent movies, we're used to Charlie Chaplin, like getting the girl, not the girl is drained of blood by the end so that she can save the city. Yeah. What's your take on like this narrative structure? Because now this is the part where we're getting away from Stoker's novel and Murnau gets to, to try his hand at altering the story enough that he won't get sued, which of course course he will. Um, What do you think of the moves he makes story-wise? Like I said, I, I think, I think there's something really kind of ingenious about pretty much everything that he does. Although, if, I, if I'm honest, I'm a little reluctant to uh, praise it too much because I kind of agree with the point you made about Herzog's movie that I think when it comes to really kind of twisting and, and messing with kind of the back half of the story, Herzog kind of does it better. Sure. And he, he has 50 years of hindsight, right? Sure. Um, like for me, ultimately, I think the the kind of the uncompromising dedication that he has to fusing this uh, magnetic personality that's running around killing people with just death and disease itself is for me probably the most uh, striking and kind of affective thing that he does. Because as much as I like the ending in particular with the what you said with the blood drinking and the sun coming in i don't feel like there's enough focus given to those characters specifically the the protagonists sure to make any of them compelling if, if that makes sense or to to make me kind of feel for them beyond that i want them to get out of being or to get out of this kind of oppressive permeating death that's everywhere you know what i mean Right. To me, and that it, is that is a far bigger presence than anything else. So it, it's kind of hard for me to land anywhere on that. I think, and that's kind of why I use the term fairy tale to describe it, because like all of these characters are types, and they're they're, they're dealing with big ideas. And I think um, it's it's always so hard to say, like, oh, what's what's the intent? But we can't help but analyzing these movies. And to me, this is a movie that kind of clearly seems to be in response to the aftermath of world war one that you know in in the land uh, where the hutters live it's it's a land of flowers and kittens and everything is great and young love can flourish and then in comes this this outside hideous influence that brings death and famine and it's it's all of a sudden becomes really easy to see that as a parallel either for the war itself or just the absolute ruin that befell germany once they were forced to pay reparations for everything and it just crippled them economically um, whether or not that's the intention or whether Murnau just loves Dracula, wanted to make, you know, an, an absolutely terrifying movie, who's to say, but it does seem like it's, um, put together to be a fairy tale 
to kind of tout like Germany is still cool. Like here's a recognizable German town where love reigns sup- supreme and death comes and love can stave it off, but at a cost. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't disagree. I guess, I guess the reason I'm sort of reluctant to kind of fully embrace that line of thinking is that it seems to me that, th- that those ideas are what gave birth to this entire genre rather than just this specific film. Mm-hmm. And so while I, I don't disagree, like all that is there, I wonder if buying so much into that kind of distracts from what this individual film's merits are particularly a hundred years removed from that context. But sure. I mean, I don't know. I don't disagree. And it's like, that's also not the first pleasures of the movie. Like that's, that's in none of our six points is like, Oh, how you can analyze this as a, you know, a gauge of what national identity was like. It is kind of something that you can read into, but really it's, it's used provocative use of imagery and cinema and ability to shock, if not terrify um, is is really like the big draw, and I think that that's why it's always a favorite of Halloween Halloween time when you're putting in vampire movies. Like Nosferatu is always like one of the first ones that's brought up, and it's not for it's not for any of that. It's it's just because, like you say, the design is cool, the the mood is great, the atmosphere is palpable, and and still even without assigning it a specific real world corollary, like you said, that that atmosphere of death and plague and the the pure force of love and sacrifice rising up to meet that is still a palpable story structure to latch onto. Like it's still a structure that works for a modern audience, I think. Yeah. Okay. So we're coming up on time. Um, yeah, still a a great movie. And I mean, you and I, an easy sell, right. To people who are film nerves, who don't mind silent movies, but, um, I, I would still hope if anybody has hesitations about silent film, I think that this is like one of the, you know, top three or five that I would, put on a list anybody who's hesitant because of um, because of the chilling imagery, because it's a, a pretty easy to understand tale, because it moves fairly well and has a striking vampire character, a striking vampire design. Um, I, I think it's a, a really good package that you can put together for somebody who's hesitant about watching movies earlier from this era. Like, honestly, aside from uh, Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton comedy, I can't really think of one that's better suited to modern day sensibilities. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, I'd I'd say it's this and Caligari are kind of the ones that I always kind of use as a litmus test for whether or not you can stomach a silent movie. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a great litmus. Um, I'm I'm with you. I we we've talked a lot in the past about. Um, I I think comedies and horror are the genres that did best by silent movies. And that's not to knock any of the dramas, but you kind of teased at it earlier that a lot of dramas in the silent days kind of just didn't know. Well, it's not that they didn't know. Editing wasn't really a a thing back then. This was a night's entertainment. So it was cool for a movie to be three, four, five hours long. And a lot of the dramas wind up doing that. But comedies and horror always seem to have like a pretty succinct structure. They kept it to like 90 minutes to two hours. It's a lot more what we're used to today. Um, so Nosferatu is an easy one to slip in, like you're saying, as a litmus test. So if anybody is hesitant about watching silent movies and you're looking for a good spooky one this October, Anthony Badger and myself can think of none better to start with than a symphony of horror. Am I wrong, Mr. Badger? No, you are absolutely right. All right. 
Well, then, uh, why don't we lay that one down? But uh, for anybody who's still maybe not sold, we can slip over to 1979 for uh, a vampire that does a little more talking. So let's talk spoilers for Nosferatu, Phantom der Nacht. You must excuse my rude entrance. I'm Count Dracula. I know of you from Jonathan's diary. Since he has been with you, he is ruined. He will not die. Yes, he will. Death is overwhelming. Eventually, we all is. Stars spin and reel in confusion. Time passes in blindness. Rivers flow without knowing their course. Only death is cruelly sure. Dying is cruelty against the unsuspecting. But death is not everything. It's more cruel not to be able to die. I wish I could partake of the love which is between you and Jonathan. Nothing in this world. Not even God can touch that. And it will not change. Even if Jonathan never recognizes me again. I could change everything. Will you come to me and be my ally? That be salvation for your husband. And for me, the absence of love is the most abject pain. Salvation comes from ourselves alone. And you may rest assured that even the unthinkable will not deter me. All right, Anthony, so the first thing I want to talk about, we've... Uh... Already with the Symphony of Horror segment, we've been kind of uh, pitting Max Shrek and Klaus Kinski up against each other. So playing essentially the same character, different names. Kinski gets to be Dracula because of copyright uh, restrictions finally lifting. But Max Shrek being Count Orlok, still a plague-ridden vampire coming to bring death and destruction to a humble little German town. Um, this sounded like one of your reasons for bumping it down to Cine Trust, that you you have a lot of sympathy for Klaus Kinski, that he's full of pathos. but you say he doesn't top Max Shrek. So we talked a lot about Max Shrek being a selling point for Symphony of Horror. Let's talk about Klaus Kinski. What's your take on his performance in the role? Like I said, I'm, I'm conflicted on this because I, I love what he does in this role, but I just don't think it's as iconic as Shrek. But I, I, I guess the ultimate thing to say is, is they're, they're different things. Mm -hmm. Max, Max Shrek is a just uncompromising predator and like that's what he is klaus kinski is a, is a much more in-depth character with much more uh nuanced kind of motivations and feelings i mean i mean just the fact that he has feelings already yeah. sets him yeah. sets him worlds apart from what max shrek is yeah because because you know max shrek is great and i, and so, I agree like he's so much more yeah i mean i i don't think it's fair to say that this is yeah, I don't think it's fair to say that this is why I a reason to knock it down, but I do think that kind of his sort of sad, pathetic kind of vampire doesn't play to everyone 
the way that the the predator does you know sure yeah because that's a, that's a type you can get into is the scary looking guy is scary you know like max max shrek is there to chew bubble gum and drink blood and he's all out of bubble gum so when you have klaus kinski who's a, a little more sad it requires a little more interaction with a character that maybe you don't want to interact with it's it's a lot easier to look at these monsters and just see them as representations of evil and, and something that has to be defeated. So if you can sympathize with him, it makes it a little harder when he has to burn up in the sun. Um, yeah, he's, he's kind of cornerstone to me. I called him probably like the most sympathetic vampire I can think of in any movie. And I, I'd even mentioned in the spoiler free section that I don't think like another vampire performance had really made me like think about what it's like to be that character. Like to me, he always was the antagonist. But that, that first scene when Harker is just uh, dining with him and he's just staring at him creepily, like he's still off-putting, like he's still a bad guy, but his creepy looks as opposed to Max Shrek, like Max Shrek is just like, I'm gonna eat this dude. Kinski manages to betray like how many dozens or hundreds of years he's just been living in this pile of rocks by himself and so to like actually be interacting with another person is kind of weird to him and he doesn't know how to look at him. He doesn't have social graces. And even if he did, it wouldn't make a difference because he still wants to drink that dude's blood. It all of a sudden makes him like such a more sympathetic character. And I love oh all those the speeches he has about, you know, death's not the worst thing. Like not being able to grow old is a terrible thing. And, and also that's that talk he has with Lucy, which is my oh, I geeked out so much that shot where Lucy is brushing her hair in the mirror and the door opens and you can only see his shadow because he's not casting a reflection and it's all done one shot is, is so freaking good. I was like yeah. squealing with glee when that happened. Um, but that, that talk they have about how he's kind of threatening like the destruction of the town and her husband's sanity in exchange for like some of the love that she gives to her husband. And that's, maybe we can segue this to your, your point about this Lucy being just a massive improvement over the over Helen from Murnau's movie, um, honestly, she, over most of the protagonists from the other movie. That's that's a fair point. I mean, she the the point I had there, and this is also about like the tweaks that I like Herzog makes to the second half of the story. Is um, in in this version of the story, Lucy gets to be the Van Helsing character. Like she's the one that has the standoff with him and says, you know, you are threatening that my husband will never know me again, but I'm not going to cave into you. And she stands her ground against him. And it's such an awesome moment that still lets him be the bad guy. And it's satisfying to watch him walk away defeated. But at the same time, that whole conversation, he's so sad. Like his, all of a sudden, like his, his rat like features that kind of mimic Max Shrek's become less hideous and they almost become pitiful. Yeah. One, oh yeah. They completely do. I think the thing about him is that, you know, Murnau takes such uh, pains, I think, to kind of connect the vampire with nature. Herzog, you mean? No, no, no. In Murnau's oh, Murnau. film. Okay. Uh, by showing kind of the natural vampires and all this stuff. And, and, yeah. and Shrek's Nosferatu is, a, is just an animal, you know. And I think the film kind of almost postulates that that is a thing that exists in nature. And it, and. Yeah, there's threats out there that are they're a threat to humanity. In Herzog's film, uh, Klaus Kinski is, like you said, you can see that he used to be a human, and you can see that he's kind of still wants to be a human, 
but just by the nature of what he is. And it's not because he's just an animal and it's just us versus him. It's just that what he is can't exist. Like it can't coexist in our right. world. And, and, that, and that he feels that pain. And I think to some degree, you know, even, even like Lucy might feel that pain from him, but that, 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 that just kind of like total, how, how totally impossible it is for him to exist in the world, no matter how much he wants to really kind of adds to the, the tragedy of him. And I think it's, it's the hallmark of his character that really sets him apart as something uh, different from really any other vampire performance. I think that I've, that I've seen. Yeah, no, he's he's a, a top tier one for me. Um, it's, oh, I, I was gonna say I'm I'm reminded of like Let the Right One In, where there's kind of a similar sad vampire yeah, thing going yeah. on, but but in a lot of these other movies, the vampires have like a they have some kind of plan for how they can still live in society, and for him that just does not seem possible. Like he he carries death with him everywhere, whether yeah. he wants to or not. Um, and it, and it goes be and it goes beyond just his need to survive. It's just what he is. Yeah, I I was gonna say that he he kind of has like that dual identity of he he longs for an existence where he could grow old or die, and yet his eternal life is such a in, so ingrained in him. Like his his mission to spread the plague is so much a part of him that he these these two sides of himself just keep battling it out, and he can't help but give in to like his base nature of just. I have to keep going. Watching the movie, I was kind of, he almost seemed like uh, a, a man on a mission. The spreading of the plague becomes like a, a crusade for him almost. And I, it got me wondering about like if uh, this was a calculated moment to to buy this house and start bringing all this death and plague to civilization if if maybe he'd just been fed up with living in the castle for so long and, and denying who he truly was. But yeah, like once he once he gets there, like like you said, it, he doesn't even have like control of it. One thing that I found interesting is that in Murnau's movie, the plague kind of seems like non-existent. It's it's a scapegoat that is put on to Nosferatu because nobody knows that he's a vampire or even that he's there in the first place. But everybody everybody who dies in Murnau's movie is found with the puncture marks in their neck. So Everyone who dies, they assume it's plague, but it's really Count Orlock. But in in Herzog's movie, I think it's implied that he eats very few people, and that he is legitimately bringing disease and plague. And you know that we start with a h- hundreds of rats, and it just grows to thousands, and they're they're being spread far and wide with Renfield. And by the end of the movie, it's implied Harker is going off to some other country to to spread it abroad. Like it, the whole thing has such a big um seventh seal ingmar bergman feel like to the point that like shots are almost ripped off like that whole dance macabre in the square where people are just feasting and dancing and they're banqueting while there's just rats everywhere is like directly out of seventh seal and that's that's one of these things i'm talking about that i I don't know what to do with it but just like this hypnotic rumination on just massive desolation and death and destruction it's so satisfying for me to watch scenes like that and maybe it's because of the way that the images are composed that he herzog like like murnau kind of has a documentarian approach he uses a handhold camera through all this um you know you you really feel like you're in this town that is just being absolutely annihilated and it you know we were talking about like you can kind of force readings onto 
Nosferatu is like a post-World War One national identity thing or whatever. And I, I kept thinking about like, well, what is Herzog's like response to? Is he, is the arms race freaking him out? Is it the Cold War? Is he worried about like anthrax or biological weapons? And it, I kind of f- finally got to the point where I was like, maybe he's not saying anything. Maybe this is just Werner Herzog. Right. Well, I think that's what he'd say. <laughs> yeah, I think on the the making of that's on Scream Factory's Blu-ray, he he says something like all my movies come from a place of pain or something. And he leaves it at that. In, in true fashion, he says something kind of profound and then kind of just leaves it dangling for you to chew on. And I think this whole movie kind of functions like that, that I can't really verbalize what it is that I'm drawn to in the second half of this movie where there's just hundreds of caskets being marched down the street and, and everything is deserted and there's rats everywhere. Like, I can't verbalize why I find it so interesting, but it's such a striking image. And the way he shoots it and the way he's layering, like, those Gregorian chants over it just, like, sucks me in. It, it, like, the movie itself is almost like a vampire. Like, I almost just go, like, wide-eyed and I'm like, yes, master, life is pain. Yeah, and, and I, think, I think this is probably the reason that, for me, this is a sin of trust. Because while that works really well for me, I can see many I mean, there's many people I know who who are, who love movies who are not kind of open to being hypnotized by this kind of pulsating, undulating cavalcade of images and sound that that yeah. that he's calling a movie here. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So I I actually like had a similar thought process, um, and then what tipped me over is is what has saved me time and again. It's the the wife measuring stick. Is uh, Amanda watched both of these with me, and she loved. Herzog's movie. I couldn't believe how much she loved it. Um, And she was just really drawn in. She thought it was just creepy. Like there were a couple of moments she was actually like hiding behind the blankets. Like when um, every, every time Dracula is kind of like creeping up on Harker and is going to feast on him. The the final thing with Lucy and the, the shot we talked about with the shadow and the no reflection, like all that stuff still really played for her. And I was, that gave me the confidence to go. Yeah. Everyone's got to see this because it clearly has some kind of power, but I can't, disagree with you that it uh yeah that mood is definitely not for everybody and even if it does grip people there's a lot of people who are going to be like why did i watch this movie that just made me feel like really sad and, and spends a half hour just about like humanity dying off and death being like the true overlord of existence <laughs> um i'm curious about this point though so you say that um herzog's relying strongly on his mood over conventional narrative structure are there things about the narrative structure that you find dissatisfying or is it just that he favors mood over them? Yeah. I mean, he's constantly pulling away from what we've come to expect a movie is supposed to do to carry the story along in order to just show us these kind of, I mean, sometimes it's related. I'm thinking about at the beginning, he has so many just gorgeous shots of, um, you know, the, those mountains that are Mm -hmm. so beautiful, but they are so creepy. But, and, and that one is kind of, related because it's the setting but you think about the opening where it's just like a ton of mummies and it's like that has nothing to do with the movie in case you didn't understand this is going to be a movie about death and just enduring through centuries and and it's only yeah it's it's only a connection to the movie is is thematic not necessarily narrative sure and it's and it's just the kind of constant I mean, it's not as constant as I probably make it sound, but but it happens enough. This this kind of incongruous uh, editing that I think I think you have to be open to it 
to allow it to kind of hypnotize you. Um, For sure. I thought that was such an interesting point, though, because to me, the, the tweaks that Herzog's making almost make this a more satisfying narrative to me at parts, because I, I feel like in Murnau's movie, the last half hour when, um, you know, the vampire has finally arrived in civilization, it's kind of a lot of waiting around until like enough people have died that Lucy will make the sacrifice. And that's still happening here, but we also have, like I said, Lucy Lucy gets to be Van Helsing, and we have sections of her like going on the hunt and, and tainting his coffin with like pieces of communion wafers so that he can't rest there. And then we have this. Even just what kind of what you're saying, even the even the waiting around for the people to die, just watching the town slowly deteriorate. I mean, there's there's definitely more uh, palpable drama to it in Herzog's than in Murnau's for sure. Yeah. And and I give both movies credit because it feels like the the kind of more easy move to make for either would be, you know, a montage of Orlock slash Dracula just sneaking into houses and eating people. And instead, both movies kind of do it with just like funeral processions marching in streets that just get bigger and bigger with each passing day. And it's a really effective move move that also perpetuates the mood, keeps the story moving. I I really see where you're getting at because he does favor mood and and the feelings that cinema can give you over like a traditional plot but it's still he he he's tweaking things that almost seem like designed to get modern audiences more invested like the the whole subplot with harker becoming a vampire i think is a great (laughs) twist and and kind of even makes that final sacrifice all the more heartbreaking that though she knows she's got to um sacrifice herself to kill dracula she can't bring herself to kill her own husband so the best thing she's going to do is is lock him in the corner with those you know crumbs of communion wafer it's like that's such a good plot move and then that's just so depressing because in Murnau's movie it's that love conquers the plague from that day forward the plague stopped everything was totally fine and in, and in Herzog's movie it's like she stopped that vampire and the one who used to love her is the new monster and he's just going to go and, and spread the unholy mission yeah it's sort of like uh yeah, the the death maybe maybe you can postpone death, but uh, it is inevitable. Kind yeah, of I I really wish I could remember the dialogue that he shares with Lucy in that scene where she's in the mirror because it's all about that, right? It's all about like death is the only true overlord, and and he he has that line or something of basically repeating like death's not the worst thing, like to live forever that's the worst thing. So it almost feels like this this mission he's on is, is almost kind of like a mercy to mankind, and that's kind of where I got like that unholy crusade idea from that he he will give mankind the rest that he can't have yeah like i said this is a this is a hard one because i do i do love this movie but i i haven't talked to a lot of people who uh tend to agree yeah and and i'm with you like I, i don't see this movie playing to everyone and it's just such a funny thing because so much of it does seem like it should right i mean it's it's in color there's sound there's dialogue there's even an english language version of it Mm -hmm. like it's kind of like made to be like oh you don't like old silent german movies like here's a remake that gives you a little more of the things you want and has some cool stuff happening in the second act but yeah it's it's still like all that stuff like the i've called that um that plays Bergman Square with all the the dancing and everything because it's just so much out of Seventh Seal. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so it's it's this weird mix of like it seems to be giving you enough to get like a a more contemporary audience in, and then it kind of just pulls a fast one and it's like here's a random kid playing a violin at uh, Dracula's castle. Let's see what you can do. Mm-hmm. With that. <laughs> yep. 
one big addition to this movie that, that we just said uh, is is the fact that it's not silent. There is there is sound permanently kind of welded to these images. Mm. And for me, I think I think something that that I really love that I think really helps uh, kind of get drawn in is that that soundtrack that that is itself very pulsating and uh, it is mostly just kind of tr- chantings, ominous mm-hmm. chantings, and it it really adds that that inescapability that the whole movie is just trapped by yeah uh, but i but i love it it's really good yeah and and i i had teased i think in general impressions of what a a 70s downer this is because yeah we, we just talked about that ending being like you're you're screwed no matter what like the heroine can sacrifice herself and it doesn't even matter to me that's uh, like this is a movie that i i wonder if in its own way was very influential because i felt like i saw a lot of the shining in this movie that the shining does similar things about that move. And even these kind of, uh, these chants and things like that. I was like, did, did Kubrick just really love Herzog's movie? Cause I, I know it was a, a pretty big hit among people who are in the know, like, like you're saying people who, who are willing to be drawn into the, the hypnotic air and what this is doing for cinema more than what it's doing in terms of just remaking this really, really old movie as a remake how do you think it does? Is it enough of its own thing? Is it too much of its own thing? We've kind of danced around this, but I, I kind of want like your official stamp on it. Yeah. For me, it is very much its own thing. Um, and I, I mean, I personally don't find that disappointing at all. It, it's a reason that they're both worth discussing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll admit it. It's also almost surprisingly so much its own thing <laughs> to a point, to a point where to to some degree, and I mean, again, maybe this speaks to why this is just a trust for me, but to some degree, it's a little disappointing that some of the things I love the most from the previous film don't carry over here. I was going to ask you that. Like, what what do you miss from Murnau's movie that you wish had been carried over? Oh, I just, I mean, I love Inhuman Vampires, personally. You know, I, I like the that it's just this unrelenting animalistic force. And and I really like that. And I like kind of the heightened expressionist kind of moves that it makes. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I, I think if it was, I think if they did carry a lot of that stuff over, this wouldn't be worth discussing as its own movie. You know, I, I wouldn't want both of these on my shelf. I would choose one over the other. And and as it stands, it's, it's hard for me to give up one, I, you know, yeah. I, 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 I feel like I need both. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely wouldn't give up either of them i think that they both do their own thing so well and um something i think that really helped me appreciate the movie actually was listening to a comment that herzog has made over and over about the movie because people ask like why did you want to remake nosferatu and he's a he's a big fan of it i think he's gone on record of saying he thinks it's like the the best german movie Mm -hmm. ever made certainly up to the point where he made the remake but he he had this point about his generation of filmmakers in Germany don't have fathers in, in the cinematic world that, that everyone that they could kind of look up to from the generation previous was kind of appropriated by the Nazi movement. And so they didn't have anybody that they could um, learn from or react to. So they had their, their grandfathers, they had guys like F.W. Murnau and they had Fritz Lang. Um, And so he said that this movie he made it because he wanted to bridge that gap that was left by these fathers who joined the Nazi party, that he was trying to make a connection with guys like Murnau with, um, I think it's the, the new German cinema movement is what 
Herzog's it group is. is kind of a part of with like Fassbender and Vim Vendors. Yeah. Um, and to me, that's that's just like so fascinating. And I, I think that that honestly, because I, I heard that before I watched the movie, and I think that gave me like the best possible chance at liking it because all of a sudden it wasn't just like, well, I'm a guy who's kind of like gloomy and death and, you know, vampires seem cool to me. So I'll just remake Nosferatu. Like to have like an actual purpose, like to me, like that's as good a reason as I have ever heard to remake a movie, you know? And I mean, I think most of the great remakes can kind of get on board with that same idea that it's about kind of connecting directors connecting with their cinematic heroes even if we want to go to a funner maybe less artistic one but even peter jackson's king kong is is kind of his connection to this age of special effects that he loves so dearly that he wants to inject a little more artistry and mood and humanity into um so you know that's another way that i thought that maybe this movie and herzog were kind of trendsetters in the world of remakes Hmm. Yeah, I, I yeah again I I don't I don't disagree with that at all actually, um, and I think now nah, I'll just leave it at that I don't disagree. <laughs> so I, I guess our our final question should be how do you feel about the lack of hyenas in Herzog's film? It's disappointing. I, I'll I'll say that, but he makes up for it with thousands of rats, a few pigs, some mummies. Yeah, M- mummies that he um broke into a, broke into a museum, a museum. Right? yeah and just filmed it he's um i think doing the research for this movie Werner herzog has become my new hero because um he's he's kind of like an off-putting guy like um if you watch any interviews with him like he's pretty quick to put people in their place but he still does it in such a way that um doesn't seem dickish to me like he he really is genuine and has his principles so he kind of just doesn't deal with shallow statements or you know kind of like flippant remarks on movies and yeah all that stuff about just um i wanted some shots of mummies so i myself picked the lock and took a camera in and i picked the mummies up and they're really light can you know because they're dried out over the centuries and you can just kind of put them wherever you want and then you can just get these shots it's like yeah you're a madman and my hero <laughs> oh and that that was the, the one last thing i wanted to say is we talked about Murnau's movie being like really special effects laden. And I worried that that was something I was going to miss in this one because this is a, a, a little more tight. You know, I, I think he has American backing through 20th Century Fox, but that in order to retain artistic control, he doesn't get a ton of money. And so, you know, I was like, oh, we're not going to get like the ghost valley and we're not going to get like him disappearing in a puff of smoke in the end. He still found so many amazing ways to do effects in camera. Like the the shot we talked about with the the no reflection in the mirror but the shadows is awesome even just something as simple as the contact lenses to show like his eyes have been scorched by the sun like totally makes up for all that stuff like to me i was to go back to something you said earlier i was trying to think of like what's something from murnau's movie that i miss and i wish was in this one and maybe i miss like the the on the hunt montage on the ship you know in Murnau's movie it's really satisfying to watch that crew kind of dwindle and you know the poor captain and first mate all alone on that ship like you can really feel like the walls closing in and you don't really get that here but other than that it's like I don't really miss like the rising from the coffin on the plank I don't miss like a lot of these effect shots like to me yeah Herzog made such a unique movie off of this the bones of completely recognizable one like we said Symphony of Horror is one of the most influential horror movies ever made. And he managed to remake it in a way that it's completely Herzog's movie. 
Yeah, and and for me, I I do miss a lot of that kind of special effects stuff and kind of the more uh, almost like painterly, maybe even borderline cartoonish images and stuff. But but for me, that really kind of hits a nerve with me that that Herzog doesn't. But I will say that uh, Herzog's commitment to kind of still doing a lot of these really creepy things in camera, whether that's just pouring rats all over everything or uh you know just filming a bat going in slow motion or getting up close to a mummy like whatever it is even though it's maybe not as expressionistic and and stuff uh it's still really uncanny and gets under your skin in a in a pretty satisfying way mm-hmm. you know i don't i definitely don't want to put that down cuz cuz he does still succeed like you're saying at, at all of those things so with this film, do you think he succeeded in his goal of bridging that gap between the, the expressionistic movement of the German grandfathers and his new German movement? Yeah. No, yeah, I absolutely do. I do too. It's an impressive feat. Yeah. What are, like we said, what, like 50 plus years between the two? And to, to have like th- that much of a connection that still retains individual identity at either end of it is, uh, is masterful and completely why I support it being in a thousand and one movies and why I think everyone should see it. I hope it makes our list of cinemas films. Me too. Well, no, I don't. <laughs> I like it. You do, but, uh, you know, you wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, to that, everybody. I, I would be, I would be, I would be pleasantly surprised. Yeah. I, I'm not feeling super confident in it because I, I really do understand where you're coming from. And, and honestly, like if Amanda had not reacted as positively to it as she had, like I, I might still have gone with cinemas, but I'd be on like, way shakier ground but because i've seen it work in action i'm like it worked for her and it can for you i'll have to show it at my halloween party this please year. please do it's a rip roaring good time what's the uh, right. <laughs> what's what's the best drinking game you could play with herzog's nosferatu take as many drinks as there are rats. that's what i was gonna say gotta tie it to the rats okay cool well uh you and your party guests rest in peace then <laughs> <laughs> As I mean, Herzog would want. As he exactly, it's inevitable. You might as well get it over with. Uh, anything else you want to say about Herzog's Nosferatu? No, it's cool. It's weird, and it, and it 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 somehow managed to do what I'm praising the original for doing, in that it is a Dracula movie that is largely free of the cliches and kind of pop cultural trappings that would have been around by that point. It's true. Yeah, definitely, like, way, way heavier. This is in the era of, uh, like, the Hammer Draculas and stuff. I, I think there even was a an officially sanctioned Dracula movie from Universal this very same year. It was the year of the vampire, and, yeah, Herzog managed to stand head and shoulders above all of it, I think. Mm-hmm. Cool, man. Well, and, and the last thing I have to thank you for with this double feature is, um, I, I think very few movie titles are as fun to say as Nosferatu, so thank you for letting me have that that candy for my tongue for an entire 90 minutes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, man, it was great to have you back for a Halloween episode. You're always welcome back for monsters. We, this begs the question though, will we ever get you for a musical? Uh, maybe. Is there a monster in it? If there's monsters in it. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll look at that. Does Rocky horror picture show count? Sure. <laughs> okay. I don't really want to do it, but whatever. so yeah man thank you thanks a ton for hosting this episode and thanks everybody for listening um anthony we we've kept this buried but this is our final double feature episode so another distinct honor you will hold from this point forward we are going to follow listener requests to start doing weekly shows just talking about one movie a week so 
I think this was a really good pairing to go out on, two Nosferatu movies, and uh, really gets us in the spirit of the season. So, Anthony, thank you for being here for this curtain call. And thank you for having me. Always my pleasure. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll hope you, we hope you'll join us in two weeks for the very first of our single movie format episodes. Uh, this whole theme of plague is going to continue because we are going to be joined by David Sandu to discuss the Vincent Price, Roger Corman classic, The Mask of the Red Death, which should be a, a very cheesy, fun time. I'm very excited. You're a Vincent Price fan yourself, as I understand, Mr. Badger. Yes, sir. Okay. I, I will love to hear your input because um, this is the only Vincent Price movie in 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. And I'm very intrigued. I, I really like it. I'm interested why it was the one that was chosen. But all uh, that. Me too, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but all that's a discussion for our episode in two weeks. So we hope to see everybody then. Thanks for listening. Now go home and bar your doors and windows. 